journey to be with us tonight. And we'll be talking about memory a lot because in, in a moment we're going to move into uh, talking about the smell of Shabbos. Perfect timing. <laughs> and um, it's so we'll, we'll talk, but we'll, we'll begin where we left off last week. Actually, no. We're going to begin... Before the last place we were last week, we were talking about cutting the nails on, as preparation for Shabbos. Mm-hmm. So where we left off was, if you remember this, where we left off was, <laughs> it's a never-ending source of grief, I'm sure, for Deborah. So it's, it's not grieving any of us, so you don't have to worry about it. Okay. We're good. So um, where we left off last week, at the, bitter, at the bitty, bitty, bitty end, was that we were talking about L'Chadodi and the whole early iterations of Kabbalat Shabbat, of receiving Shabbat, even that we didn't really talk a lot about that term, Kabbalat Shabbat, which is itself a very unique, a unique term. Lekabel Shabbat, to receive Shabbat. What, receive what? what? What does it even mean? Why Lekabel? There's usually, there are two terms usually that are that with Shabbat, with bringing Shabbat, Hachnasat Shabbat, 
is bringing Shabbat in. Lachnis, it means to bring it in. The Kabel means to receive in some way. Both of them are, are strange. Like, what does it mean exactly? What are you receiving? Um, the word Kabbalah, the Kabel Shabbat, Kabbalah Shabbat. Um, it's kind of, I'm sure it's something that many of you haven't thought about because we don't think about these things. They're given to us as if they're, this is the way they were formed. But, um, so we were at the end of the class last week where we started talking about very early iterations of this thing that has become known as Kabbalah Shabbat. And we saw a couple of sources talking about what they used to do. They used to say a couple of psalms, go out into the field and so on. We'll get back to that a little bit in a little bit. But I wanted to, to read something from um, a Kabbalistic work in, in, the, in the latter part of the 16th century. Or the, or actually, it's, not, it's, it's earlier than that. It's actually earlier than the latter part of the 16th century, but it's published later. But it's called Tolat Yaakov. Tolat Yaakov. And it's, um, it's a work on... Uh, it, it's, um, it's the author, sorry, is, is the Tolat Yaakov, and the, and the name of the book is Sod HaShabbat, the mystery or the secret of Shabbat. Does Tolat mean something? Tolat is um, it's a worm. The Tolat Yaakov. That was the name of, of one of his previous sorry, of his previous works. And the name of the book that he wrote here on Shabbat is called The Mystery of Shabbat, The Secret of Shabbat. So I wanted to hand it out because I wanted to read what he writes about nails because it's kind of, it's a little bit far out and, it, and we saw a little bit of it but I wanted to see earlier an earlier iteration of it. You might want to, is that, is that the, I think this is my yeah, copy? Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. <laughs> I ask you a quick question about the last week? Sure, for sure. You were talking about the garment. The garment defines the body. You threatened to wear a Beckish. I threatened? <laughs> threatened. That's your strong word. Yeah. I'll just say I'll take say one thing. That's ex- that's a, a slight exaggeration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm certainly okay with it. I used to think, like when presidents go to visit synagogues, they put it on the Right. Yeah. And I wonder what your take is on that. I'm non-judgmental, and yet we're talking about the garment, to quote you, the garment defining. Yeah, well, see, I'll, I'll tell you the truth is, the truth is that I, um, when I look out in the Kila, I see almost everyone actually wearing yarmulkes, not, not that way. And I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen many women wearing yarmulkes in our shul. But I'm certainly happy if they want to. But most of the men wear yarmulkes. I'd say nine out of nine and a half out of ten men. There's maybe four or five people that I see that don't wear yarmulkes. And so uh, there was a time in, in Roma where I wanted to to make it very clear when people walked into the into the shul that they should cover their heads. Um, and what ensued was a, a bit of a, a brouhaha about it. A couple of a couple of people came over and said that they didn't appreciate being told explicitly to do something that is pretty clear. If you walk into a shul, it's very, it's very clear that it's implicit that you should be covering your head. And this person who said it to me said, you know, you should pretty much assume, Rabbi, that if people aren't wearing yarmulkes, it's, it's not out of ignorance. It's, out of, it's intentional. And I took that to heart, and I thought, it's, he's right. And if, they, if those people who are intentionally not wearing yarmulkes um, 
have their own reasons for not wearing a yarmulke, then I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not to, in a place to coerce people to do something that if they're clearly not, for whatever reason, they, they don't want to wear it, they have their own reasons. It'll be between them and God and between them and, and the community. So, you know, I think that it is important to wear yarmulke and to cover our heads. I think it's, it saddens me that more people don't wear their yarmulkes in general. It's, it's, I think someone once called American Jews, thank you very much, um, in, inverted Muranos, where Muranos or conversos were Jews that had to be Jewish in secret and in public they couldn't be Jewish. We ourselves have the luxury of being Jewish in public and we don't even, we don't even feel that it's okay to do it. In New York, I mean, you know, to wear a yarmulke... Again, it's, it's, again it's, it's a very personal thing. It's not my place to, to... People have different relationships with clothing and making a public statement about their Jewishness and, and how Jewish they want to be and how Jewish they want to look. But if you're asking me, and, you're, and if, you're, if you enjoy being a Jew, and you, and, you, and, you know, I know plenty of Orthodox Jews who don't wear yarmulkes on a regular basis, but when it comes to, to doing Jewish things, which is a funny thing also, they, they put on their yarmulke. So I think that there's something very beautiful about a kippah, about a yarmulke. I went to see a school here in New York City where, um, considering sending my, 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 my sons, and, uh, and they prided themselves on saying that during Judaic studies, our children wear yarmulkes. Okay. And I said, I, I thought to myself, why shouldn't they wear yarmulke when they're doing math? That's not, a holy, that's not holy when you're doing math. So if you're already going to use the yarmulke as, as, a, as a kind of... Uh, um, as a signature of something sacred, then I think that it should be to try to wear it as, as often as possible. But I think that um, again, when people come to the shul, there's implicit and and uh, and explicit. And I think that the the implicit is uh, that to wear yarmulke during services is is expected. And if people don't, I think that it's appropriate to. Uh, to let them figure it out themselves. That's my personal opinion about it. Um, so, so when, when, when people ask me, used to ask me why I'm not wearing a yarmulke when I wasn't, I used to say to them, I am, but you just can't see it. <laughs> right? If you had yarmulke eyes, you'd see my, my yarmulke. It's, it's underneath my, it's underneath, it's, it's in the place where only I know. And um, the original reason for wearing a yarmulke, just that we're on, since we're on it, is that the Gemara says that, um, that people used to cover their heads, that they would have like a sense of, of fear of God, and that in the, in the spatial relationship, God being above us, right, if you felt that someone was looking at you, you covered your head, out of a sense of, uh, of something above you, having more power over you, stronger than you, so for a lot of us, that doesn't really work in our own theology. And what I usually say to people about wearing yarmulke is that it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful symbol of the humility of the human mind. Right? The things that I can't understand are not intending to, to <coughs> engender in me frust- uh, despair, but, of, of, but majesty. <coughs> so the yarmulke is the transcendence of the mind. Right, the yarmulke is that place where I say, ah, thank you. Thank God for the things that I don't get yet. You know. Um, 
and it also keeps you warm. <coughs> it's also <coughs> it's a fashion statement. Okay. <laughs> so on this sheet, welcome, brother. You got a sheet here. Yes. Everybody got one. Anybody got one? Okay. This is from the Soda Shabbat. Can everybody see that on the top of the page? It says Soda Shabbat. On the first page. First page. I'm going in order. I'm going in order tonight. Keep me on track, Max. Keep me on track. Keep me on track. I won't. Keep me on track. Keep me on track. Focus, focus. Pair one's nails is, um, he gives 22, I should have printed this too, but he gives 22 ways of, of honoring Shabbat. He said, this is the mystery of Nagila v'nisme chabach. We will rejoice in you, Bach. Bach in Hebrew is bet chaf, which is the numerical value of 22. Right? So he gives 22 things that you can do in preparation for Shabbat. And he says, that's alluded to in the verse, Nagila v'nismechabach. We will rejoice and, and, and be ecstatic in Bach, in you, which is 22, 22 practices. And the third one is to pare one's nails. Remember we did this last week? <clears throat> now this, this is a, a fuller explication of that very mysterious Kabbalistic thing that we said last week. Know that the garment that Adam wore was from the mystery of the chariots called Achorayim, or rear ones. According to our sages of blessed memory, they were garments of nail. And when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, all of these chariots surrounded him, and no evil thing could draw near him. When he sinned, these lights left him, and he was divested of the garment of that inclination. Nothing of that primordial garment remained except for the nails at the tips of the fingers, and toes, and they are surrounded by filth. And since one must not bring an impurity into the sanctuary, meaning Shabbat, right? One must pair them on Friday afternoon so that the sacred is not profaned on account of this impurity. Nor should one nearly throw away the pairings, thereby denigrating the left side, for the proper balance between the forces of din and divinity constitutes the perfection of the cosmos, and God has made the left side so that people will fear him. So, this is very interesting. So, the original garment of the human being in this mythic early beginnings of humanity was that we were guarded from head to toe in a translucent, hard-like nail, which was analogous to chariots, of protection surrounding us from from forces that would that would damage us, right? So that again, this is a common mythic theme. Don't, if you're trying to say you're like, wait a second, I don't remember being born with a nail around me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. This is myth. This is myth. And like myth is trying to point out to a level of consciousness or a level of of innocence, right? It's trying to take an analogy. To say that there was a point in, in human development on a mythic level where that which was once a protection now is considered to be <clears throat> a separation. Let's put it that way. 
that which originally was a protection is now in a very subtle, a remnant of that protection is the vestige that remains. And, and it is surrounded with impurity, it's surrounded by filth. So the body becomes an analog for consciousness. So he's using the body, saying, oh, in the body you have nails. Now that nail is surrounded by dirt. It has an underbelly. It's a place where your skin, right, were you to pull off your nail, you would have raw, right, there would be, it'd be a, a place of, of be very raw. And, and it, it, dirt, in, there's dirt on the body, but dirt gets underneath the fingernails. So it's a place of liminality between inside and outside. Yeah? It's a place where the inside and the outside are, um, are not clearly delineated. It protects the soft, vulnerable place underneath. Right? So imagine that what he's saying, mythically, is that human beings were originally extremely vulnerable. In order to protect that vulnerability, there was a, a nail that was from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Right? You were surrounded in porcelain of sorts. And it's a common theme. If you look in the Golden Bow and other places, there's a common mythical uh, notion that early human life, there was this kind of shell, either a shell or a nail. Now, I'm sure they chose nail not because they had an original source that it was a nail, but because there are nails in the body, and they were trying to explain the body, and then retro-rejected that myth and created it. So the remnant, the nail, is a remnant of what once was a, a protective place, but it's no longer protection. In other words, it is protection, but, it's, uh, but it has to be tamed. Because were we now to have too much nail, we, we would be we'd return to that mythic, original, embryonic place. And that's not the place to go. So the original protection, which meant separation, now in Kabbalah becomes din, or the forces of separation. And so we have a vestige of din in the body, a vestige of severity, of judgment, of, of separateness in the body, and too much of it, like too much evil in the world, because this becomes also an analog ontologically for all evil, because givura, din, judgment, separation, is the source of all evil in the world. So when I pare my nails, I'm also, by extension, not hair extension, but extension, I'm paring, I'm mitigating the forces of evil in in the universe. You can't cut them too much because you don't want, again... There are two, there are just, just, this is kind of an important thing, it's a parenthesis, but just important, there are two different ways to look at evil Kabbalistically. Either evil is a good thing, in doses, and we seek the harmonization of evil with good in the world, the balancing of, of right and left, known as the center column, Tiferet, right, the center, the heart, holds the right and left together and harmonizes them, or we wish to get rid of evil completely. Right? Evil must be eradicated completely. And those two are not reconciled in the Kabbalah. Don't, don't think, okay, there's some great Kabbalist or person came along and reconciled these two, th- these two um, approaches, these two understandings of evil. Evil is either something that needs to be neutralized completely, or it needs to be fed slightly. The forces of evil have to be fed slightly. Don't overfeed them, but don't starve them. If you starve evil, it'll get stronger. Right? That's, those are two distinct 
and strong voices in Kabbalah. Destroy evil on the one hand, eradicate it completely, or feed it just enough so that it doesn't overwhelm the world. And by the way, this is not just Kabbalah, in all myth, this, this, this tension is in, in, in mythology in general. The forces of evil and the forces of light, light and darkness are, are at war, and the only way to win is not to completely destroy evil, but to, uh, to, to appease it, to appease evil. So the way that Kabbalah learns, for example, on Yom Kippur, right? Yom Kippur, what happens on Yom Kippur? What's the ritual in the temple on Yom Kippur? What's the central ritual on Yom Kippur? In the temple. Not in the temple Beit Shalom or Beit Ahava, whatever it is. But in the temple in Israel in antiquity. What's, what's the central ritual? It happened in the temple. The high priest would do what? The high would go into the Holy of Holies. Right. And under the word of God. Right. That's one important ritual. There's a, but that's not... That's not a, a, a cultic ritual in the temple. That was something the high priest did, you're right. That was, a, the, that was the ultimate moment, certainly for the rabbis. It, but from the Bible, sorry, not from the rabbinic understanding of what the high priest did, but from the Bible itself, what's the central ritual act on Yom Kippur? Yes. Right, you have two goats. That's right, two goats. Right, two goats. You have two goats. And you have two goats. And, and what? They look exactly alike. Exactly alike. And there's a goral. What's a goral? There was a lot that was chosen. One lot would, would choose, right? one of the, the goats was offered up wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, he was completely uh, in Ola, like completely consumed on the altar. Right? So you're Hashem. And what was this, what happened to his twin? He set free. Right. So according to the Bible, he's set free. Right? According to the rabbis, he's pushed off a cliff. But, but, uh, but, but in the Bible, he's set free, right? Sa'ir lazazel. Now, wait a second. What's lazazel? Right? So in modern, in modern Hebrew, if you say to somebody, lech lazazel, you probably wouldn't even say it. So lech lazazel means go to hell. Azazel, azazel was... With, 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 there's no doubt from the biblical scholarship that it was a demon, a demonic god. Mm. And according to the Zohar, Azazel also is Az, is strength, Givurah, Din. And the Sa'ir, Sa'ir is a um, the goat. The goat was sent into the desert in order to appease the demonic and to give it, to feed it. You fed the demonic. You didn't starve it. Because if you starve the demonic, you overturn the world. The world in that, in that particular... Can you explain that? Because the demonic is... Um, in, the, in myth, the demonic needs power. And if it's starved of power completely in this particular... In the way that they're thinking about it in this, in this way, in that one school of thought, it actually makes it worse. It gets hungrier and hungrier, and then it erupts. And so the appeasing of the demonic is a way of keeping, it, keeping an equilibrium between the forces of good and the forces of evil. In other words, the demonic, the assumption is the demonic needs to be fed, needs to be given energy. Because it is strong, and you can't, do, you can't completely eradicate it. So if you don't feed it, it gets too hungry, and when it gets too hungry, it acts out, out of proportion. So that um, it's a strategy for keeping the world in balance. And I'm sure a lot of you, given who you are, and knowing a lot of you as my students, are thinking about this psychologically. 
which is, uh, of course, if you look at Jung and other mythologists, it's a common theme of the shadow and where the shadow is and how to feed the shadow and what happens when you starve the shadow and so on and so on. So this is kind of in the mythic stuff. So before I get to both of your comments, just to come back to Shabbat before I take your comments, so pairing of the nails and cutting the hair too, because both of them are places in the body where din, meaning judgment, or it, that which isn't um, alive fully, because nails, nails and hair are both rooted in aliveness, but themselves are, are lacking sensation, so they're dead, so to speak. So it's a place where death is in the body, and they need to be trimmed. Now, what do you do with those nails? Now, he's going to go into a little bit, just briefly, and then we'll come back to both your questions. Let's just see, what, what do you do with those nail clippings? So, okay, so look, the Gemara actually, the Talmud actually talks about what you do with the nail clippings. So look. <clears throat> Here you go. The Gemara in Moed Kutten says, these are permitted to, this is, whatever, this is the Gemara says, these things, three things were said in reference to nails. One who buries them is, is a tzaddik, is, is just. One who burns them is pious, is a chassid. And one who throws them away is a rasha, a villain. You have no idea how much this impacted my, my, uh, my, uh, my sanitary practices, my, my, with my hygiene practices. The reason for this is that nails intimate din, as I said earlier, right? One who removes din by burning the nails pr- promotes peace and compassion in the world. This constitutes midat chasidut, pious conduct that benefits both the person and others. So then it goes into all, to, the, to these two. One who buries them is just, even though he did not remove din from the world totally, still he impedes din and quiets it. However, this falls short of the actions of the chassid. One who throws them away is a villain, for he causes din to flow into the world. And in, and in the Gemara it says, what is the reason that one should not throw away nails? Lest a pregnant woman should step over them and miscarry. Now I tell you, I literally have taken that with me since I'm a kid. If I, if I ever... Co- that, yeah, that's another thing. I, I knew this Gemara from when I was young. I knew this Gemara when I was young, and, I, and to this day, if I cut my nails, um, I, have to, I have to flush them, or, or it has to be, not just for sanitary reasons, if, I, if one of them falls on the floor, I, I'm running around to find, you know, if, when Ariel would clip the kids' nails also, I'd be the same way. I, I have to catch them in like a little bowl or something. It's like horrible, because God forbid... Like a pregnant woman would miscarry, you know, like somebody would step on it, and it's like, it's very superstitious, you know. But he connects it, listen to what he connects it to, which is interesting. But let me, let me just finish what he connects it to, and then, and then, okay. And he says, perhaps this is woman's punishment, because she caused Adam to be divested of his precious garment. Now, lest you think this is misogynist, no, 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 not misogyny, wait a moment. He is, he is, he is rooting this. He has a Gemara to, to deal with. He has this, this, this Talmudic statement. So he wants to say, why, why would the Talmud say that nails are... How are nails connected to birth? What's the connection between nails and birth? Right? So it's a very odd... He doesn't make the connection. The Talmud makes the connection. Why would the Talmud say that if you don't throw away the nails, that of all things, a woman might miscarry? Say something else, like, you know, like someone who... A, a, a bride won't get married or a groom won't get married. Why birth? 
So he wants to make a, 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 a bit of an abstraction. He wants to say, this shows you that the nails are connected to an original womb. It's, there's, a, there's an original womb, right? Let's, let's move off of whether or not actually stepping on a nail would actually cause a woman to miscarry, because that's, that's superstitious. That's okay. They're, they're superstitions. It's okay. Um, but he wants to connect it again to this larger motif of that we were originally protected, um, and that that thing which protected us and separated us is now um, is remains as a remnant of that original protection, but doesn't serve to protect us any longer. It actually needs to be paired. Uh, we can't go back to that original protection. Let's just stop right there with the nails, and I'm going to take. I think Max first, and then Judy. You were going to say something. No, I just wanted to comment. The thing, but I was going to ask you about the program learning before you read it. Ah, okay. Because I grew up with that. Okay, yeah. Wow. Sure. Yeah, I was always afraid to cut it. Yep. So, Two things. First of all, there's a custom in the black community, a very strong custom, that you don't dispose of your nails because somebody could do roots on you, some kind of mumbo-jumbo kind of thing. They would utilize something from the body, and they would be able to do you harm. I see. So like vo- like, like in the voodoo, voodoo culture? Yes. Yes. In the voodoo culture, okay. The other thing, when Max was asking about the evil, I was looking for a, a uh, something, a metaphor. I was saying of Captain Kirk. Okay. Went into the transporter room. Okay. split between the good and the bad. Like he was, it, there was a malfunction in the transporter room. And there were two Captain Kirks that came out. Ooh. I missed this. Well, when I was at Wyoming, you, you couldn't learn it at um, Star Trek. It wasn't really. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> if, if it's not Torah Trek, it's not. I get it, I get it. I get it, I get it. So, so the good, good Captain Kirk, he could never make a decision. It was the good one. There was none of that evil that you're just talking about. I see. Any decision that he would make might harm somebody. I see. He couldn't do it. He was just uh, ineffective. And the evil was the same way. Only wanted to kind of knock everybody out. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Let, let, I mean, it, it's a, a much broader conversation about, about quote-unquote, evil and, and the dark side, and, and certainly in Kabbalah, what's called the Sitra Akhra, the other side, um, is a very, very strong um, reality for Kabbalah. And what, what constitutes Sitra Akhra is itself has been uh, an evolving topic for two millennia. So what itself is evil, and, and how do we, is evil ontological, meaning it exists as a thing in and of itself? Is it perceptual? Is it a combination of both? Is it evil because I see it as evil, and if I only could see it with real eyes and realize that it's not evil? Right? That itself has been an evolving relationship with evil in the world, right? And certainly in early Kabbalah, evil is a thing itself. It's, it has a real, um, it's, it's, it's part of the structure of reality, and that the Kabbalist is working to separate the good from the evil constantly, doing these kinds of things. And so these games, which seem to be hygienic and, and lovely for getting ready for Shabbat, have cosmic significance. For this Kabbalist, when you cut your nails, you better make sure you dispose of them right, because it's not just that you know, a pregnant woman might miscarry, God forbid, but like the, the din in the world is affected by your nails. And that's a whole lot riding on your nails. But... For Kabbalists, every human being is a microcosm of the universe. Every, every human being's consciousness itself is uh, structurally the same as the consciousness of the entire universe. So as it goes with you, 
as it goes with you, that's how it goes in the universe at large. It's not as if you and the universe, like, you could never say to a Kabbalist, oh, a human being is so small and insignificant. Like, what difference will it make if I pair my nails? You say that to a Kabbalist and they say, what do you mean? You were created, you're the crown of creation. When your thoughts are holy, the world is holier because of your thoughts. When you do holy deeds, the world is holier because of your deeds. When you pull those strings, the universe is now inclined, bending, arcing towards something more righteous and more holy, more, more kadosh, more, more full. So it kind of, it, you know, it's, on one hand, it smacks of a kind of grandiosity, right, to some of us. There is a kind of grandiosity in imagining that the balance of the universe is depending on my religio uh, rituals, right? Like whether or not I, like part of, we hear that when people say, we, we actually, we do say this. Those of us who are, even, even if we're mystical, we say this. Like if somebody says to you, what do you mean? If you rip toilet paper on Shabbos, that's a cosmic tear. It's not just in your, in, your, in, your, in, the, in your bathroom that you tore something, but you tore something in the, in the fabric of the universe when you tore your toilet paper, right? You think that, you're, you think that you, there's a place where you can go to hide and it, it doesn't matter what you do, it matters. So a lot of us would balk at that kind of thinking. We'd say, oh, please. The God of the universe could give a flying hutz what I do with my toilet paper? Right? I'm sure some of you say exactly those words. Right? You're like, come on. Like... And we, I'm sure we say that a lot about Jewish ritual. I'm, come on. Like, does it really matter to God if I eat this shrimp or not? I mean, I'm sure people have heard this or never before. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> but the Kabbalist would say that not, the Kabbalist and the Halachist would all agree that there is nothing insignificant about what you do and that um, it is important to abide by these, by these rules, they would argue, because the universe has been hardwired in this way. Now, we might not agree with their, their assumption about the rules in the universe. We might say, listen, we agree that we're really important, but you know, if you were Muslim, you'd, you'd have a saying that about eating halal. And if you were Buddhist, you'd have a saying that about a whole host of you know, the Eightfold Path and so on. And it's kind of, this is what Jews do, but it's not going to tip the universe in any which way. But what is important is the way that I my compassion and my awareness and my love, you know, we'll have, we have our own rules, you know, about the universe now. Just anyway, yeah, Judy. So, when you describe Adam surrounded by nails, and then bring in all, all full circle to the pregnant woman on this carry, the nails reminded me of the amniotic sac. The amniotic sac? Yeah, that was protecting the fetus until it was born. And then you mentioned the shellfish, which is like the nail around uh, yeah. the outside of the body. Yeah, the it's exoskeleton, the yeah. And it's now tying in in a different way. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. The whole nail thing is a very... I, I'm, I'm going to do a lot more research on it. Um, it's, it's really interesting also with cutting them and also looking at them at the end of Shabbat. This whole nail thing is, is wild. Nothing about painting Huh? <laughs> no, I think this is a good source for getting a manicure before Shabbat. I mean, this is, and, I, and I actually know, I know somebody who goes to get a manicure. He's a guy who goes to get a manicure. And, uh, and, he, and he says, like a little kavanah before he does it, he has like a, a beautiful intention. He says, I'm going now to remove din from the world and get a little clearer polish on me. So the nail clippings, the nail clippings, 
the manicurist is allowed to discord? How, how does yeah, I don't know how he does it often. <laughs> <laughs> he saves it's a good question. You should go. You should actually go on a you know. You can go on a crusade to find out what's happening to all the clippings. Where are the nail depository? The flushing's okay. The flushing's okay. Should it be in the ground? I mean, there's a whole thing. One thing is one thing is for sure is that that in Kabbalah. Um, one thing I want you to get out of this is that in Kabbalah there isn't anything that's insignificant. Isn't that beautiful? It's like wow. Who would have thought that they would have a whole section about your nails in Kabbalah? And especially on Erev Shabbat. Especially on Erev Shabbat, because on Erev Shabbat, on the eve of the Sabbath, like the end of the week is the strongest time for din. So you have to, because like a candle going out at the end of, of the day, the end of the week is the strongest time and for, of judgment and separation and what's called din. And it's time to, to, to lessen din. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to add... Uh uh, about the, in Chinese philosophy and cosmology, the nails are very important. Every part of the body is very important and has an energetic quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, it definitely exists and is notable in terms of diagnosis, in terms of treatment, in terms of understanding connection to, to the universe. Do you happen to know what, what the... Yeah, nails, <coughs> nails are related to, well, they're, they're, they're considered to be an extension of bone. But they're also, uh, they're energetically, they are a manifestation of what's called liver gallbladder energy. So it's the meridian of the liver gallbladder. It has very much of a psychodynamic, a psychoemotional quality. So, uh, and the the, the energy of liver gallbladder is related to spring, and it's related to... uh, Renewal. Yeah, definitely related to renewal, and it's related to anger, the energy of anger. (coughs) So it has a number of different qualities. So, for example, nail biting or, uh, is, is very much part of the, di- the diagnosis in, in Chinese medicine, Chinese philosophy. Mm. So it's, it has a big significance. It's great. So, like that. Also, your nails reveal your health. Well, that's right. right yeah. Yeah. You could tell oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you how the, the quality of the quality. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a whole different thing. The quality of each part of the body, including including yeah. the nails, sure. and and you can think of it in terms of hair too. What happens with hair, and that has a whole different set of emotional and psychological right. and uh, uh, physical qualities. It's wonderful, isn't it? I love that. So if nail is bone then the nail is the only part in your body where bone is extended that you can see. It's a kind of way of going back into internally and externally. Right. And bone, bone is always, in, in Kabbalah, is always uh, also dim. It's hard. Yeah. It's inflexible. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I never heard about this, this uh, Jewish tradition of connection with the nails before yeah. the last time. And, but as soon as we talk about it here, I can immediately connect it to all this Chinese philosophy because it's certainly part of the cosmology. Beautiful and stuff. Of, and the sense of thinking about nothing is without meaning or everything has meaning. Well, it's, that's in Chinese philosophy. Everything has meaning and everything is interconnected. That's true of Judaism, too. True of Judaism, also. Everything yeah, has what, meaning that's and that's it's connected. That's what I'm connected to. Okay. Are we done? No. <laughs> <laughs> One more. Um, when I used to work at the Jewish special needs camp, I had, I had a youngster, and I'm not sure, perhaps it was part of his special needs, or whether it was part of his religiosity, 
Right. He came to camp one summer. He had the longest nails I have ever seen on any on the planet. And I spoke to his aunt and uncle, and I said, they said he won't cut. He bleeds, and he had this belief system about leaving yeah. about having long nails. Is there anything? There's some other belief about not cutting your nails. Yes, you don't hair your nails. You know, I'm not an expert in this area. Like I, I can look it up. I mean, it's it's really something. Uh, I don't know. No. no. The other thing, I got my nail caught in the door. It's <laughs> an interesting thing that I just I just found out about. I got my nail caught in a car door. Yeah. And the the blood blister has been moving up towards the end of. So in some ways, now you can understand why. I I, I think that. I have to do more research into this, but I think that the nail is the closest thing in our body to what um, to what the snake does when it when it when the when the snake skin is sloughed, and it I think it must have some res, resonance with that, and then connect it back to the garden. A lot of the mythology around the first sin had to do with the snake and so on, so it's a residue of that din. I don't know. There's a lot there. I'll, I promise to do more on nails, but let's move on <laughs> to um, okay, right. We're moving on in our spa to um, so another minog, another custom that is well known from early sources, but then receives a lot of play in the Hasidic sources is taking a nap on Erev Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Erev Shabbat. Erev Shabbat. Mm. So a lot of people, of course, know about the shlofi or the nap on Shabbos. Right? That's like Shabbos. Shabbat is all about taking a nap. But on Erev Shabbat, there's, there's, it's well known from the Baal Shem Tov and from the students of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, it's, I mean, it's earlier, much earlier than the Baal Shem Tov, but I'm saying the Baal Shem Tov made it famous. The Baal Shem Tov used to say that he used to take a nap before, once you take three naps on Shabbos. Or three sleeps. The first sleep is on, on the day preceding Shabbat. And Friday. Time Friday after Mincha. Friday night is another time to sleep. And then you sleep again in the afternoon on Shabbat. So three, three Shabbos, one Arab Shabbat. Okay, fine. Three, three sleeps. And he essentially said, and this is something I, I, I totally grok this, and I get I will love it. Sleep is um, a portal into... The, the other dimensions. And we download a level of consciousness with ev every time we go to sleep. So the Baal Shem said that you, that sleep is like taking off clothing. So the same way you take off clothing physically, sleep is the way you disrobe your mind. So that in order to be able to receive the new Shabbat clothing, meaning the new Shabbat state of mind, you had to die to the weak. And sleep is like dying or taking off clothing. They're both the, taking off clothing and dying, the same thing in our tradition. So there's a way of that sleep on Arab Shabbat prepares you to receive the th that level of consciousness that is coming down on Friday night. Then you fall asleep on Friday night and you wake up and you have a new level of consciousness for Shabbat morning. And then you go to sleep on Shabbat afternoon and you're able to receive the new light that comes. That's the way he, he, he saw it. Right? There's these three... 
So I wanted to read a, a, a source for you around that. It's, it's on the second page. On the top it says, Preparing to Enter. It should be the second page. Yeah. Yeah, there are There's one. You can take one. And then. So it's number 14. See it? Or Haner. The Lechavitz, or Mordechai of Lechavitz. May his merit protect us, was always careful to take a nap on Erev Shabbat, for this is also part of the honor of Shabbat, to receive Shabbat with a clear mind and fully awake. Right? Mm-hmm. So, that, that teaching from the Lechavitzer and others in the Baal Shem Tov is about taking a nap. Okay, shifting gears, another practice. Ready? I'm not sure how many people are actually going to get a chance to take a nap on Arab Shabbat, but if you do, tell me how it goes. <laughs> I wanted to look at also. There's a, there's a custom on Arab Shabbat. There's a custom of smelling incense in order to prepare for Shabbat. I said we were going to get back to smell. Smell is a big deal in our in our tradition. Yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, I said this a couple of weeks ago. The only sense, the only sense of all of our senses that isn't involved in the original fall from Edenic, from Edenic perfection, is the sense of smell. The olfactory sense is the only thing that the only sense that isn't involved. So there's touching, there's hearing, there's seeing. All of those are involved, and um, smelling isn't in that story. And the reason, one of the reasons given, and of course we also have um, this, the, the incense in the temple, right, were a very big deal. And we know that in Hinduism, the nadis that, are, that exist behind the nose, right, the two nadis. And so there's something very important about a scent um, and messianic awareness. So in our tradition, the Messiah is connected to the breath of the nostrils. In the Book of Lamentations, it said, Ruach Apeinu Mashiach Adonai, that the breath of our nostrils, Ruach Apeinu, the breath of our nostrils, Mashiach is the anointed one. Which means to say that a lot happens here. Right? A lot happens here. Our first breath, and so on. Primal Chi, original, our Jing, is really from the, from the deepest place. It's from the first breath. So the, the sense that breath holds memory, the breath of the nose specifically, and that scent, right, the inhale, the, the scent or the aroma of infinity um, is, is, is a memory. Right, that's the, like, that you know already, otherwise you wouldn't want it. Right, M- Messiah is the breath of our nostrils means that there's some residue of an original knowing that we yearn for, and that is, uh, it's not new. At the end of all our, the, the end of all of our searching will be to arrive where we began to know it for the first time because we were there, but we know it now as a memory, but it's still it's still new. So we um, the focus on scent and smelling is very important on Shabbat in particular. If you'll turn your page, please. 
to, um, you know what, go to the last page. This is from Bella Chagall. She wrote, this is Chagall, right? Chagall, the great artist. Um, for me, the, sh- the Sabbath begins as early as Thursday towards sunset. In the late evening, Mother runs quickly out of the shop as though trying to rest herself by force from the weekday bustle. While she is still in the shop, I hear her calling out, Bashka, where are you? We're going to the bathhouse. Susha, is the linen ready? Almost furtively, Mother and I slipped out through the front door of our apartment as though it were already Saturday and the shop never closed. For Mother would be ashamed to go through the shop with a bundle of linen under her arm. Mother is carried away in the sleigh somewhere into pure air as though she were already beginning to tremble in awe of all the holy texts that God willing she must recite before the Sabbath comes. And this last little piece here, page 40, um, this section is marvelous. Anyway, he writes, um, where is it? From the very morning, Friday begins differently from any other day. For breakfast, we find a pile of stuffed sebulnikis. On Friday, no dinner, i.e. in midday, is cooked. Instead, hot food, everyone gets a sebulnik. It seems that all of us smell of onion. Odors, one sharper than another, pervade the house. Hashed onions and soaked challah filled with fish with new blood. The stuffed piece um, of fish sprinkled with water looks almost alive. They leap seemingly off of their, of their own impulse into the copper pan and are boiled slowly on a small fire until they grow yellow and red. The smell tantalizes us. It tickles our noses. It brings us the first taste of Shabbat. Sebulius is something that in my family was a, a common, Savoyas is an onion dish made up of just onions, oil, salt, and pepper. My father used to make it almost every Shabbos afternoon growing up. We would come home, there would be tam-tams and challah for Kiddush, and there would be Savoyas that my father had made and it would sat in the, in the refrigerator. So this depiction of a smell, right, the sense of, that I've talked about with Rabbi Zalman, that, that he would turn the fans so that you could, um, that you could smell... Right, you could smell Shabbat coming, and already you feel like an erotic quality to Shabbat. It's as if Shabbat has a perfume, like Oud de Shabbat. Right? Chanel Shabbat, number seven. Right? Shabbat, the fragrance. It has like, there is a quality which, of, of the lover here. Right? You feel, the, and we've talked already about the erotic quality of Shabbat. So Shabbat has like, we're in love with the day, and the day smells beautifully. And it tantalizes, it, it invites. You can't yet eat Shabbat food. You don't have your meal, but you can smell it. It tells you it's on the way, right? So they didn't have any lunch on Shabbat afternoon. To this day, I can't eat lunch on Shabbat afternoon. I sometimes do. I get hungry, I eat, but then I think to myself, in my head, I go, Ingrid, how are you going to eat tonight? And I ate at 1 o'clock. It's like 1 o'clock, I have 6 hours until Shabbos, and I'm eating, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm going to have a big meal in, in a couple of hours. I'm not supposed to eat now. So like there's a quality of like you don't eat because it's going to be a big deal. And um, they're holding off, but the smells of Shabbat are already there. They're tantalizing them, right? 
they have that. Um, let's go back to the first, the second page, rather. Go back to the second page. I know we're going all over, the, but go back to the second page. Go to number fifteen from the the holy Melech, the holy Reb Melech. Once I was with my holy master, number fifteen, Rabbi Elimelech of the Zhensk. When he came back from the mikveh on Arab Shabbat, he lay down on his bed and he said, Who can bear the sweetness of these fragrances of Shabbat? And then from the Zitachover, who could smell Eden on Friday afternoon, he writes, Once one of his grandsons entered into his chamber, number 16, after an hour of, of noon, after an hour of noon on Friday, when the holiness of Shabbat was already on the Rebbe. I love that. The holiness of Shabbat was already on the Rebbe. Like it had descended like a cloud of Shabbat. He was already surrounded by Shabbat, the Kedusha, the holiness of Shabbat. You remember last week? Kedusha means holiness. He was confused. Remember last week about the, the story about the Rebbe that when he came back from the mikveh, he would be a foot, to, a head taller yes. than he was? Right? Remember that? Yes. So listen to this, number 16. He would enter his, he entered his, one of his grandsons entered his chamber after the hour of noon on Friday when the holiness of the Shabbat had already uh, descended on the Rebbe. The Rebbe opened up his box of snuff, right? Do people know what snuff tabak is? Like it was smelling, right? So he, um, he opened his box of snuff and let him smell the scent. And then he asked him if he smelled, if he had smelled the scent of Eden. And when he said he didn't, the Rebbe said his voice resonating with holiness. In the future, you will smell it. It's a famous story about um, Mendel of Vitebsk, one of the early Hasidim, who moved to Israel. And word got to Mendel of Vitebsk that uh, one of the earliest Hasidic outposts in, in Israel, and he was living in, in northern Israel, in Tzfat, and a certain Messianic figure arrived in Tiberia, in Tiberias, in, in the area near where he was, this, this Rebbe. And all of the Rebbe's students, all these teacher students, kept coming to the Rebbe, to the Mendel of Vitebsk, and say, you know, there's this, this guy claiming to be the Messiah who just arrived. You, you think we should go uh, check it out? So the Rebbe said no. So they waited a couple of weeks, and, and word was spreading that he was the Messiah. And they came to him again and said, should we go check it out? And so Mendel said no. So the Chassid said, no, Rabbi, you know, he's been here for, for like half a year, and word is spreading that he's the he's Mashiach, and people like are starting to gather followers. Don't you think we should go and say something? So, so Ramon Levitesk um, walked over to the window, and he opened up the window, and he, uh, and he put his head out the window, and he, and he went like this. And he closed the window, and he said, he's not the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> The student said, what, what happened? He said, it says, it says in the Pasuk, that the smell of our nostrils is the, is the Mashiach of God. He said, when Messiah comes, the world will smell differently. I know he's not the Messiah. It doesn't smell like the Messiah's time. So there's like a quality to, um, like, you know, just today I was on my bike coming over here in Central Park. And uh, it's amazing, right? It's amazing to get out of the, of the city, in the city. 
right when I get off Central Park North, I'm 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 on the bike lane. There's nobody out. It's it's six thirty, and there's no six fifteen. Nobody was out, and I took one big deep breath and I looked up at the at the at the beautiful fall foliage, and a memory just came up in my head quickly. That's all it took, because I smelled the leaves and something in me was was awakened, and so I think that to some extent, I think you could say that all spiritual practices are trying to get to a place where if you close your eyes and you could take a deep breath, you'd remember them. Not the practice, but what the fruits of the practice are. So you could close your eyes and in one, one schmeck, one smell, you could smell life, you know, the beauty of life, the pathos of life. And that it would, it would be information that you didn't, wasn't fed to you through your eyes or through learn, like reading, not even through listening, but through a memory, you know. I think that that's what they're alluding to. And then if we go to, um, let's go to something that I, that I used to love to do. that says, Receiving Shabbat in Nature. Yeah, it says page 40 on the top. Go to number 4. This is, this is from Yosef of Hamadan, Sefer Tashak. Israel spoke before the Holy One. Let me just translate the verse. It's, in ver- it's verse 3 of, from the Song of Songs. In a moment, you'll see that the Song of Songs is a very important connection to Shabbat. Everybody, by the way, is with me? Did I lose anybody, Scott? You still around? You still, everybody's still with me? Oh, that's on page 40, all right. Yeah? Okay. All right. yeah. But not just like where we are on the page, like everybody with me, like okay. we're together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just checking, just checking in. to the, the scent of your oils are good, and therefore young maidens love you. Right, that's the verse in, so, in Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. meaning the smell, reach. Shmanecha of your oils or your anointed oils, are they're they're beautiful, they're 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 sweet, right? And therefore, al kain, therefore, alamot ahivucha, young maidens love you. And then the midrash, that is, and Yosef Hamadan, Israel spoke before the Holy One, Sovereign of the Universe. Your anointed, your ointment yields a sweet fragrance. When the Holy One gave the Torah to Moses, our teacher at Sinai, the mountain became a holy aromatic. aromatic and remained fragrant the entire 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert. Let me say that again. The mountain became a holy aromatic. It was filled with the, with, the, with the aroma of the divine and remained fragrant the entire 40 years that Israel wandered in the desert. They began to chant 
Your anointed yields a sweet fragrance, meaning the fragrance of the Torah which you gave us, the written and oral Torah. Therefore it says, your, your ointment yields a sweet fragrance. Your name is like flowing oil. Just as when one pours aromatic oil from one vessel to another, it wafts forth scent, so too Torah, which is the names of God. When one learns it, its fragrance spreads forth. Everything is perfumed from it. <clears throat> so this is not about Shabbos as ar- aroma, but about Torah as aroma, Toroma, and that the residue of an encounter with God is impossible to be completely emptied out. If you take fragranced oil and you try to remove it from its flask, there would still be a residue of that oil adhering to the, gla- to the, ga- to the glass, the container. <coughs> so I, I, when I was 20, uh, 21, 22 years old, I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this, right? When you have one experience, of something very, very powerful, it leaves a roshan. It leaves a, an impression, an impression, yeah. And you can't get away from it. It makes a claim on you. It's like, and even when you try to rub it out, it, it, gets, it sticks on you somewhere, right? You try to get, get rid of it, and, and you just get more busy with it. So the, the fragrance of an encounter with God, or with, um, with wakefulness, you know, with truth, makes a claim. So Torah as the ultimate encounter with God in our tradition, when we say that we had an, uh, that the Torah is is an oil that is fragrant, it means that number one, it's, if it's a real encounter, you can't walk away to some degree. It lasts for forty years on that mountain. That mountain was now it smelled of that encounter. And two, um, that. The thing itself is um, this is why it's so it's so important to to, uh, to ask questions like if if someone is really practicing like there's a church in California called Agape Agape this guy Michael Beckwith <laughs> has anybody ever been there? Amazing place. It's like 6,000 people on Sunday morning, Shabbos morning, Sunday morning. And like three different services, 2,000 people each one, and he does all of them. He's got a lot of energy. And they, and I was talking to him, and I said to him, you know, Michael, tell me a good story about your community. I want to, because we're building a community. I want to know, how did you know, when did you know that your community was really on fire? You know? He said, I'll tell you, we started getting. We started hearing from people that when people from our community would go visit people in the hospital that were sick, they would, they were, they were such an energy that they were exuding that people started asking them what they were on. They said, "Oh, we're not on anything. We just we, we go to Agape." Like the experience was so much a part of who they were, and it was exuding with such a depth and such a clarity, with such a, a luminosity that. You couldn't help, it, you know. So, like, like Lahavdil, when when people are sensitive to sense, like people know people like this. When you can't, when you go on a retreat, and they're and they're and somebody's wearing a strong perfume, and it really throws you, right? So human beings are by, are smelling beings. So we can smell when somebody's telling the truth. We can smell when they're on fire, when they're real. 
And they don't have to do anything. They just have to be lit, you know. Or they just have to be exuding that perfume, and you'll get it. So that's what he said was his... That was his... Uh, that was what it meant to be a part of his community, that he knew that wherever they went to do good things, and wherever they went to do public service, that they were ambassadors of that <coughs> scent that was being emitted, that was, that was wafting in his, in his church. And it's really, it's one of those things that in religious life, you know, when Joseph Telushkin, Rabbi Telushkin came and spoke about ethics, he said, how funny is it that we can still say about religious Jews or religious people in general, he's religious but not ethical. That already should be a contradiction. It is a contradiction, but we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be able to formulate the sentence. If you see somebody who's a religious Jew, or any religion, who acts unethically, that's he's not a religious Jew. What do you mean? So he's religious because he's, he's got the, the uniform on? Or because the, she's wearing, uh, she's got the look? She's got the look. So, which is one of the, I mean, now that I'm on my thing, but it's one of the travesties of the, of the popularization of, of yoga in our country, which is that people think it's about being flexible. <laughs> right? Like a good yogi, a, a yogini, somebody who's really, really devoted. It won't matter if you're on the mat or if you're at the elevator or if you're online. I mean, your, your practice is, it's, it's your whole life. So you won't be able to say a person's a good yogi just because they, they can do hard asanas, you know? What does that mean? That just means you're, you're a contortionist. You can be in Cirque du Soleil, you know? So it's the same thing with, with religion in general. If a person, if our practices are true, then they'll be true on Saturday night and Sunday morning. And somebody will say, well, wow, what's enriching your life that you're so full of that divine scent? Like, who are you, you know? That's a litmus test. And we are the Pew studies, people don't know, a lot of you don't know what the Pew studies are, but like the Pew survey, I'm sorry, I see a lot of people here who might not know what the heck this is. It's like a, um, a study that was done of the American Jewish community, wondering about its future. It, it was the Pew survey in Philadelphia. That, so it's a pretty low bar, isn't it, that they set for Jewish involvement. Like, are you Jewishly affiliated? That's great. I mean, it's true, it's great. I mean, these, the metrics are really important. Are you, do you care about Judaism? Do you keep Jewish practices? But they're not calling up and saying, and in your Jewish practice, are you, um, how's your mental health? I mean, that's not the, the, that's not the, that's not the survey's purpose. And I did get an email today from a guy, uh, from a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who wants to do a study on Judaism and mental health. And so this is kind of like a, this is a public service plug right now. If anybody's interested, he's looking for people to, to be involved. And all of you are, are absolutely in his demographic. People who are Jewishly involved and have some practices, whatever. And he'd like to know the effects of Jewish practice on mental health. Yeah? Huh? If you, if you, I'll send it out in, in the, I'll send it out to the Roman email list. So look for it. And if you are interested proactively, uh, email me and I'll, and I'll connect you. Um, so back to this Midrash. L'reach manecha tovim shemen turak shemecha alken alamot ahivucha. Right? Your, your, your fragrance is really, it's really overwhelming in a beautiful way. I saw a hand. 
Yeah, well, how does it tie in with the use of flowers yeah. uh, and incense in the shul? It's great. Great question. So first of all, at, at Shabbos tables, it's good to have flowers. It's important to have flowers. It's important to buy flowers for your beloved. It's important to, um, to make the house smell good. It's important to wear, um, if you want to wear you know, essential oils that are not uh, overwhelming for others, but maybe just to remind yourself or to remind someone else. It's nice. It's also nice to have on the table, at your Shabbos table, things that you can smell. Like to put some uh, myrtle branches, hadassim, and things like that. Some, if you have, you know, if you want, some people take the, the esrog that they used for sukkahs, they take the esrog and they put cloves in it, and they keep it all year round on, the, on Shabbos, and they smell it throughout Shabbos. Right? You can wear, like, put a little something over here, all of Shabbos, and your Shabbos scent. And you can smell it, come back to it. It would be a great practice. You guys can make stuff up if you want. Make up some practices about Shabbat smelling. Use a special soap on Shabbos. Have a bubble bath before Shabbat. You know? For Shabbat. Shabbat's coming. We're going to have a bubble bath. It's great. It's going to be beautiful. What a day. You know? Make it special and it'll feel special. Make sure you have, you know, freshly laundered sheets so that when you go to bed at night on Shabbos night, it smells good. Just, just indulge yourself with sensual things on Shabbat and, and, and enjoy. Yeah, no, no guilt at all. Just joy, 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 joy. So I, just wanted, to, I wanted to connect here to... Um, <laughs> Say it again. You said it's okay. We take the nap, then we got the bubble bath. No, the other. Uh, the bubble bath. Cut the nail. Cut the nail. Cut the nail. <laughs> <laughs> when we started at 11 o'clock on Friday. And then the other. Thursday. No more. Well, listen. <laughs> how about. How about what it starts right. That's nice too. All right. I, we have 17 minutes or so. I'm going to stop with. Um, it's also uh, it's also possible if you don't have time to do all that to do a smudge. So a sm- to have sage to smudge yourself on Erev Shabbat. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a universal custom of using incense to clear space energetically and to clear. Uh, we've done we've smudged the church a million times. Could use another one soon. Um, I mean, listen, there are a lot of energies in that church. They do funerals in that church. There are a lot of energies that have to be released, and smudging is a, is a way of releasing energies and, and, cleansing, and cleansing, purifying. So look on the bottom, the last, um, the last one on, on the page that we, on page 40 that we were just on. David, at one point in time, weren't there specific, though, incense that they used to We're about to do right now. We're about to do that, my friend. You are great. Look at you. Incense, number six, the ketoret. Ketoret. Can everybody say that? Ketoret. Right? Ketoret is, is in the Zohar, they play on the word ketoret. It means incense, but it also can mean to bind together. 
Incense or ketur as that which binds together divinity and worlds, creating an integrated olfactory community or union. So Elliot says, like Lakota, oh, here he says smudging. Like smudging, incense draws all entities into the same fragrant field of being. All entities into the same fragrant field of being. Love that line. This integrative power is established linguistically in the Kabbalah, where Ketur is linked with the Aramaic Ketar, meaning to bind together, or Kesher. So the word Ketur is a Hebrew word, but Aramaic for the same word, Kuf Tet Resh, Ketar, in Aramaic means Likshor, meaning to bind together. So the Zohar plays on the word in Hebrew, Ketoret, and says it's a binding. Ketoret is a Kesher. It's a, it's a knot. What is it knot together? Is Keter in that root? No. Keter is with a chaf. This is the, with a kuf. But Tachazi b'shaita de kahana rabba is kavan li'adlaka nutzitzin or botzinan rather the tata v'havakari v'keteris b'osbusmin v'havushaita dachin botzinin ilayin nahirin v'is kater kula kitra kechada rather kula kechada Come and see when the Kohen in the depths of contemplation kindled the lights in the sanctuary and was offering up the incense, supernal lights shone, above, from, shone forth above. All were bound together as one and all worlds were suffused with the exhilaration of the light. As it is written, fragrant oil and incense delight the heart. And in the Svirot, right, in terms of the energy of the God field, Incense ties the knot of faith. The upper reaches of Chochmah and Bina are called the knot of faith and keeps the divine energy flowing to Shekhinah. There's so much in the different, thing, the different kinds of spices that went into the, into the incense in the temple. Um, it, all of it is connected back to the original conversation about nails because the spices, how many spices were there in the original concoction? Anybody know? 11 spices in the original concoction, and one of them was the most foul-smelling odor that you could have imagined. Chelbana. Disgusting. But when it was mixed in together with the other 10, guess what? It was the sweetest, sweetest fragrance. Like the fragrance of the incense in our tradition is the fragrance, the aroma of divinity. So a little bit of evil, a little bit of, a little bit of darkness, a little bit of, the, of din sweetens and balances, right? It balances. And that the Ketoret, as, as the Ketoret, which creates an, an olfactory field, binds together in one odor, one smell, all of the different Sfirot, and keeps the flow coming down. Which, all of this is a way of saying that if you, can, if, you can, if you can engage the scent of smell, or the, the, scent of sm- the sense of smell, the olfactory sense, that it's a good way to come into Shabbos. It's a good way to, to release the week. And it's a good way to, um, to create sacred space. We don't have enough incense, and in I wish there was more incense in our, in, our, in our tradition. Like if we did more incense. It feels very Goyish. That's what we say to ourselves. It feels very not Jewish. Like we think of, we think of, we think of cathedrals and, ca- and we, you know. But it's just because they did it doesn't mean that we... It's great that they did it. They were smart to do it. They took it from us. We should do it. Well, we'll I, we have to do it in the right way. We have to do it in the right way. We can't. Yeah, but let me finish. So we have to do it in the right way, right? For example, 
we lost the labor, right? We lost that labor feeling. Oh, that labor feeling. You know, if you go into a church, they have an area where you can light a candle. Yeah. In Catholic churches, you can light a candle, and then you can wash your hands, mm-hmm. and then you go in to pray. And Rosalman said this to me once, and it's so true. In, in, Orthodox, in, in super-Orthodox places, they have a washing basin before you go into the, into, inside to the shul. Mm-hmm. So great. It's so great. You do a little mikvah for your hands. Yeah. You take your hands, you say, whatever I was just busy with, money, phones, whatever it is, now I'm entering into sacred space. Right? Of course, it'll become perfunctory, and you'll do it just like because you, you know, your parents did it. And that's, that's the nature of the thing. But it's just a wonderful moment. Like, you, you wash your hands, you light a candle, and you walk in. Right? So if, when Romo has a shul, God willing, uh, we'll, have, we'll have a washing area for people to prepare before they go into shul. Because it, it, it changes your mindset when you walk into shul. Huh? Nail clippers. <laughs> <laughs> Holy, nail Holy nail clippers. Can I say one thing? Yeah, yeah, Eli. My parents in the synagogue in Brooklyn, it's the Sephardic synagogue, so um, we do Kohanim every week, the, the priestly blessing, and they do the washing, and sometimes they put uh, rose water, 4711, into it, and it smells delicious. I'm a Kohan, so That's so I wash my hands, and, and, so, and it's That's on so the hands when you're doing the, the priestly blessing, oh, and uh, it's so, still, you do have that, that sense. That's beautiful. Time, but it is... It's still there. It's still I tell there. you, there's a, it, it's isn't it strong, the scent of smell. I mean, it's not you know, uh, Proust, Proustian. You know, there's a moment where uh, I, there was a time when I was very heavily involved in a particular form of martial arts. It was I was uh, like in the 90s, whatever it was, and it was down in Chinatown, and I was there. Om- like you know, you know, you guys know me already. Like I was there almost every day. Like every day. <laughs> so um, they. They, they always uh, had incense burning, always, always. And to this day, I smell it, and it's like, I, I, I feel like I have to, you know, you know, I have to get into, like, a you know, horse dance. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's, it's immediate. It's, it's Pavlovian. It's, it brings up so much. And also the sacred quality of the chanting, it's, it's really... So I wanted, to, the last thing I wanted to say and see, you guys are going to, like, know your Shabbat, like the back of your Shabbat. Let me look, let me show you. Um, this is a, this was a custom that I did for years. Yeah, okay, it's okay, it's okay. Okay. I'm just there. Uh, if you look on page 28, the aromas of Shabbat. In where? The incense or spices in Havdalah are, 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 it's very good. Uh, they, they probably, we'll get to that when we talk about Havdalah, mm-hmm. but it's certainly, con- it's connected to the reviving of the soul after it leaves, right? The, the remaining soul after the other soul, the extra soul, which we talked about, the extra level of awareness has departed. The, the incense are there to revive your own, your remaining soul, right? So that's, it's connected to 
the connection between smell and, and, and coming and awakening, right? It's not exactly the same thing as this, but... So there's a custom amongst Sephardim to chant the Song of Songs on Erev Shabbat. Hasidim, Sephardim. So the Song of Songs is a love story between God... Well, it's a love story between two lovers. <laughs> and then it is allegorically understood by the rabbis for a whole host of good and bad reasons to be um, an allegory between the soul and, and God, between the children of Israel and God. In the church, it was an, an allegory between the church and Christ. It was always seen as an allegory. The two lovers could be... Um, and it, either way, so here on, on this page, look, if you turn it upside, like to the side, this is from Yitzchak. On Erev Shabbat, if you turn the paper like this way, Horizontal. right, horizontally. On Erev Shabbat, from the time of Mincha on, recite the Song of Songs while wearing your Shabbat clothes to arouse the love between lovers, between each Jew, between the congregation of Israel and the Divine, between the Shekhinah and the Blessed Holy One. So they would sing, like I remember, you know, this was a, a beautiful custom. Song of Songs of Solomon. And then you'd sing the whole thing, you know, all eight chapters. Um, and getting ready for the beloved. It was like this big love song, you know. Now, you know, singing all eight chapters is a really lovely practice, but as uh, has already been pointed out by... Uh, Rabbi Barwick, by Rabbi Bickoff, that we um, uh, would take up the whole day. So, Shefa Gold has a beautiful series of receiving Shabbat with chants from the Song of Songs. Like she just has five or six of these really beautiful, um, you know. And she gets just these beautiful beautiful chants. And sometimes at Rummel we've done, when, when Sheer uh, used to, had a song that we might sometimes do, we'll, we'll do it again, remember? If, Yonati Right, exactly. Besetera Madrigam Ashmi'ini Enkonech so there is that beautiful tradition of, uh, but it doesn't have to be Song of Songs, man. If you, if you like, Reb Zalman says, my teacher always says that he he writes a love note to his wife and leaves it under her pillow every Friday. I wonder what he's. I, I have no idea what he says, but you know, I'm sure it's a really. It sounds pretty romantic to me. So he likes to write these little love, love poems. And trust me, whenever he calls me, and he calls me now and then to find out what I'm doing, he'll say, he'll ask me, like, are you writing love poems to Ariel, you know, before Shabbat, love notes. It's a really beautiful practice, you know. And, and if you don't, if that's not, you know, your thing, you know, have a book of poetry. Maybe, maybe it's like, uh, you know, Pablo Neruda or uh, some of the, some of the more beautiful poems of uh, Kabir and Rumi, and maybe even some Jewish poems from the from the Romantic uh, Spanish period, are uh, so beautiful. It's so nice to come into Shabbat with poetry, because really Shabbat is poetry. The rest of the week is prose, and Shabbat is poetry. So that's a really, you know, 
even even Psalms. God bless you if we had some Psalms in them. It's really nice to have a Shabbat book, and I don't mean a, a book of abstract Shabbat things. You know, I mean like a Shabbat book which has like like words that remind you of, of the holy, of the special, of the sacred, like a heart book, like words that you read not with your eyes but with your with your with your heart. That would be, that's a suggestion, you know. So we covered nails, covered a little bit of the aroma of Shabbat. At the end here, the practice of Shir Shirim. Um, there were a couple of other practices that I thought that I would do, and I'll just I'll just briefly mention them now. There's a custom of giving tzedakah before Shabbat, of giving charity, right before you light your candles, because, of course, charity opens the heart. So in our house, we have a pushka right next to, pushka is a charity box, and it's right next to the candles, and so we put, we have the kids put some push money, it's symbolic, right, you know, we're not giving a lot of money, but a dollar, two dollars, it's a really good practice, it's, it's like the end of the week should end with a moment of, of charity, it's a really beautiful practice. There's also um, um, a practice, and I want to draw your attention to this. This is just that you know about it, because once you know about it, you might forget it, but then you'll remember that that every item of food that you mentally set aside for the sake of Shabbat causes holiness to enter into the food, so that when you eat the food on Shabbos, and when the evening of Shabbos arrives, right, it enters within that food, and when it enters the body, it provides you um, with, a, with an extra dose of holiness. Now imagine, if you will, some people have a practice of doing Reiki on their food. Anybody know what Reiki is? Some people Reiki their food, right? They, there's an energy that's flowing through the body, and it's, when it's aligned and attuned with a larger energy source, it's now charging the food with a kind of pranic or energetic... Um, vibration. So some people in the Kabbalistic world think that when you buy food for Shabbat, by simply saying the words for Shabbat, or lechavot Shabbat, for the honor of Shabbat, you're now charging that food with energy. Try it out. Kind of like, you know, hidden messages in water. See if, if you can have like a plate that has for Shabbat. And like, you know, and, and you put... This would be a wild experiment. I think... I haven't tried this, but I'm just thinking about it now. Take, like, a couple of the, the serving way that you're going to serve Shabbat food in and put, like, really positive affirmations on the bowl, like serenity, peacefulness, silence, quietude, compassion, love, harmony, and see what happens. We see if you charge your bowls like that. That would be interesting, right? Like a Shabbat charger. Huh? We'll see. See, I mean, obviously, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lack a certain scientific um, rigor, possibly, but, like, see if it works. I'm going to do that this week and see if it works. I'm kind of curious about it. That's the, the charging the food. Okay. Any questions? Covered a lot today, everybody. Yeshikoch. Anybody, any questions, any thoughts, any, any meanderings before we stop?
Yeah, Yeah, Reb Nachman. Huh? <laughs> nice. From people in the community. Maybe the community can write poems and we can have them. That would be nice. <coughs> yeah, nothing. Right. So good and override outside of them. Right. And so the nail, so to speak, is protecting them. And when they sin, so that nail layer goes away. Is that, is that what the, so you, I you think, were saying that originally it was for, for protection, yeah. and then it became separation. And then it became a vestige of that original protection. It somehow becomes associated not with protection, but with gain. And I was trying to say is that, that that's not two things. That, the, that din itself means a boundary between inside and outside, and it is a protective layer. Like, din in Kabbalah is the womb, the feminine. And the womb is obviously not, it's a protected space. So, but when protection, protection becomes smothering when the threat is no longer there. So that, I think that the, the, the mythic analogy here is that this is, this is independence. And independence in, in, from God in Kabbalah is, is a necessary evil. In other words, we are separated from the primal ground of being by necessity, and we have a remnant, a mythic remnant in our, in our bodies that is analogous to that primal separation. And that we, in, in a way, it's kind of funny, but we are yearning to be nailed again, like nail-encapsulated ego, like nail, like when, you know, to have that protective encasing, which I think is a, um, which, which, which means that we were, again, absorbed into the divine domain. And so this comes to represent a kind of, the notion of separateness and the necessity of separateness. Um, and I have to work on it a little bit more. I don't 100% understand the mythic piece, but it's, it's something about that. I need to do some more, some more, uh, yeah, the more stuff on it. And I think it's one of the wilder places. It's kind of super, um, I like it. It's like, it feels very mythic. Like it could be straight out of um, a larger mythic um, traditions. Feels like share something. Yeah. Well, just um, the sense of smell is connected to that part of the brain which is the most primitive and the earliest, and is the source of uh, long-term memories and emotion. And a human brain develops on layers on top of it with the cortex, but that's the most primitive. That's great. It's the earliest place. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, brother. I have, a, I have a question about the rituals that associate with the nails. Okay. I'm curious about why, um, why you would say you would piously burn it versus justly bury it. Like, what's, why put it in the earth versus light it on fire? I think that in this particular source, I think there's an ambivalence about. In general, I said, I think before you came here, I said there's an ambivalence about evil in Kabbalah. Like, on the one hand, evil is, is, needs to be eradicated completely, or the sources of evil, and, and they, they make some symbolic jumps, or associative jumps. So, din is 
the source of evil. Din or judgment or divine constriction or holding back is the source of evil. The lack of light, the lack of... Uh, and nails represent din for a whole source. We kind of went through those associations. So to rid ourselves of the nails would be to, in that thinking, is to get rid of evil. Right? To burn the nails is to get rid of them completely. To bury them in the ground is to not get rid of them completely, but to in some way allow them to still exist, but in a, a buried form. So, right, you, but, um, but still you've done the right thing because you've buried them and you've, you've, um, you've mollified the evil sources, the evil roots, and you've, uh, uh, and you've uh, neutralized it by burying it. But if you just throw them around, then, you pro- then you're letting evil exist in the world. And so, it, again, in this system, these small symbolic acts have cosmic effects. So it's kind of magical. This is a little bit magical, right? If yeah, I, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you got it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. This separation from separation from God is a necessary evil. Yeah, that's a big sentence. I yeah. think that... Um, you said it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, it's, it's like at the end of class. Um, is that like the... Is that the conclusion of the Garden of Eden? Is that what that's about? So in the story of the Garden of Eden, it's clear that, that expulsion is, is necessary. Mm-hmm. Human choice demands it. And justice demands it. It's, it's actually human because, choice. right. Human choice demands it. Human, but human, human beings have chosen it. There is. We haven't chosen to be separate. It's a silly thing. It it it, it means to say. I, I'll speak for from from what I know of of various traditions. Like, um, the birth of consciousness as a as a subject or as a thing. Um, is is a partial truth that's necessary, and that anything anything's distance from God or from the ground of being, the ocean of being, is is partially true and partially false. And so, um, so we had no choice but to leave the Garden of Eden. Right? It's tovara. It's it's a necessary outgrowth of. Uh, consciousness itself bifurcates. Consciousness itself separates, but it can. But that it, that function of separating can itself be overcome, or undone, or realized that it's depending on which school of thought you're in. You can see through it. You can yeah. see through it, and you can make it back to the garden, which is not back; it's forward. But we can we can be in the garden again, and it happens. It happens. But it's 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 a it's a monumental journey. Monumental journey and the simplest journey. And in fact, Shabbat is supposed to be a return to the garden. That's why it's so fragrant. That's why going out to the field is so important. Shabbat is a return, a brief uh, weekly visit from the world of outside the garden to the world of inside the garden. That the garden is locked, but love and lovers can unlock the garden. They have access to the to the garden. Right? That's the that's the story. Is that lovers can know how to find the way into the garden to find each other. And Shabbat is a day of lovers. It really is. 
and also cholent and other and, <laughs> and other things for bean lovers and beans and thought. Thought, yes. Um, isn't consciousness a way of taking away a veil so that you can be closer to God? So on, on one level you get closer, on another way you, you separate in order to understand that closeness? I don't understand. So in order for us to be in order for us to be to some degree God has to be concealed. Which means, in order for us to be, we have to imagine that we that we are separate from other things and other people, and we live in a place in space and time. So our own egoic um, separation from the ground of being is is a necessary evolutionary moment, but it also creates suffering. So we wouldn't have the pleasure of being separate beings um, without being separate, but concomitant with that is that we also suffer from being separate. So, to some degree, the Jewish perception of enlightenment is a dissolution of the self into God without the loss of the self that experiences the dissolution. <laughs> it's not so deep. It's kind of, it's like, it's like going to sleep at night. You, you remember you're sleeping or not? Most of us are not aware that we're sleeping. So when we die, like, what's going to be, what's going to be waking up? So whatever is real in deep sleep is real. And nothing's real in deep sleep but your awareness. So you can be aware of... of I know I'm going to the deep waters at the end here. It's like... All of a sudden... No, I don't... Do I really? It's yeah. always at the end? Yeah. You know. It's the moment of separation. Yeah. Anyway, Shabbat is supposed... Shabbat is supposed to be a 26-hour experience of immersion in, in the world of... Uh, Divine, but that's in an ideal way. It's not. It's not usually like that. Usually, Shabbat is all is, is not even close to that. But you can smell it. <laughs> you can smell it, everybody. So let's rise and make uh, and say mourner's cottage for uh, for for Miguel's sister and for, um, for Arthur's father. Miguel, what is his sister's name? Miriam Bat Mayor. And Arthur.